Would you stand with me now as we read this morning's text? This is from Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in us Christ uh, when he was raised from the dead and seated him at, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's great to see you. Thank you for coming and worshiping at our 9 o'clock service here at Community Christian Church. We are glad that you are here. And I jumped the gun, Kelly. I'm going to pretend like I didn't even come up on the stage. How about that? I believe in you all my life, every day. Home, 
That's about as drastic of a change as you can find in a matter of two minutes. And uh, Elliot's absolute desperation is turned into unbridled joy. And what, what changed in the picture is a four-letter word called hope. Uh, as long as E.T.'s alive, there is hope. As long as he's alive, there is hope. Uh, we're going to start a new series today, and we're just going to call it Shaped by Hope. And what we're going to do is look at some of the great passages in the New Testament that move us as followers of Jesus Christ into this four-letter word called hope. And what we're going to learn is that it's the gospel that gives us hope, and it's hope that will actually shape the way that we live. Each, each and every week, this is a line that we will use as we talk about this. Our lives today are shaped by our hope for tomorrow. Our lives today are shaped by our hope for tomorrow. And this week we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 1, and it's the text that we just read together. By the way, the kids can be dismissed. I don't know if they have been or not, but uh, they can go. And I am all out of sorts because I, you know, got a jump the gun up here. It's, it's been, you know, three weeks since I've been up here. And I, just, I don't know how to do this anymore. Okay. Uh, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. And right out of the gate in chapter 1, he says, here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you all the time, and here's what I'm praying for. That God would, through wisdom and knowledge and through the Holy Spirit, open your heart up so that you would know completely the hope, the hope that you now possess as followers of Christ. And of all the things that Paul could possibly pray for, for these people, at the top of the list, the very top of the list is hope. Hope is that important. Now, this is not the punch of the sermon today, but let's just pause there just one second and, and just ask ourselves, wow, if, if Paul took the time to pray for these people and the top of the list was, I hope, I hope you know the hope, right? I want you to know the hope that you have. Then we need to ask ourselves in our prayers, are we asking God to give other people hope. Does that ever, I mean, is that a part of your prayer? God, would you give them hope? Give them hope. Give them hope. Human beings can live for about three weeks without food, and we can live with uh, for about three days without water. We can live about three minutes without air, but we cannot live three seconds without hope. It is that 
important. And so our first thought today as we jump into Ephesians chapter 1, and today is going to be very basic. We're just going to set the stage for this talk about hope that we're going to have in the, in the next few weeks. Uh, but the first thing we can grab is don't underestimate your need for hope. Don't underestimate your need for hope. That's square one. Square one is what is hope anyway? Because we use this word hope in a certain way that kind of betrays what it really means to us. When we use the word hope, we are usually venturing into the territory of wishful thinking. We say things like this, man, I hope it rains. Anybody? <laughs> we haven't had rain for a while. Man, I hope, I hope it rains this week. Now, what's the reality? The reality is I have no power, I have no control whatsoever over whether it rains or whether it doesn't. I just hope that it does. And so the way I'm using that word is wishful thinking, okay? Or we could say this, I hope the Chiefs win tomorrow night, right? Uh, a lot of us would, would want that to be the case, and we hope that that's the case, but the reality is you and I aren't putting pads on, right? We're not putting a helmet on. Uh, we are not going out on the field. We're not standing on the sideline calling plays. And so we have absolutely no influence on the outcome of the game whatsoever. But we still say, I hope the Chief wins, Chiefs win. And we still put on our lucky socks, right? That's what I will do. Uh, and it's in the territory of wishful thinking that we say, I hope, I hope, I hope. Or we say this. I hope the sermon doesn't go too long today. That is wishful thinking, okay? Yeah. Uh, so what we really mean when we use the word hope, we mean this, uncertainty, uncertainty. I hope they call me back. I hope the gas prices will go down. I hope the store is still open when we get there. Hope to us means uncertainty. And so when we open up the scripture and we come to this word hope, we are already hopelessly off target. Um, the Greek word behind the English word hope pops up about 80 times in the New Testament, and it is always translated with this little four-letter word in English, hope. But hope is really a poor word choice, because whenever you come to the word hope in Scripture, it does not mean uncertainty. The biblical definition of hope is this, it's something different, a life-shaping certainty of something. That hasn't happened yet, but you know will. Now that's 180 degrees different, isn't it? Say yes, yes. I want you to imagine uh, here that maybe you're on a battlefield. We'll just use this as an illustration. And you are fighting for your life, okay? And the longer the battle goes on in this battlefield and the, the army that you're on or the team that you're on, the, the more and more you realize that you are part of a losing battle. The enemy is winning. People on your side are falling left and right around you, and you are being more and more surrounded with less and less help. And so you keep swinging or you keep firing, uh, but the outcome of this battle seems inevitable, and you think about giving up because you know that you are going to lose. And just at that moment, you hear something. What you hear off in the distance is, the rolling in, the rolling, you, you, you hear the army marching your way. You hear the horses galloping your way. You hear the tanks 
rolling your way. You hear the fighter jets roaring your way. I don't know what kind of battle you put yourself in, so I'm trying to cover all the bases here. You can't see all of these reinforcements. They're off in the distance, but you can hear them, and you know that they are on the way. They, you know that help is coming. Now, what happens to you in that moment? Help is coming. It's, it's not here yet. It's not engaged yet. It's not beside you yet, but you know it's coming. And in that second of realization that there could be a different outcome for this fight, your arms get stronger, your heart is filled with just a little more courage, and you swing your sword a little harder. Why? Because of the knowledge of, about, of, of what's about to happen, even though it hasn't happened yet. That changes you. The future you can now see affects the moves that you make right now. And so hope, biblically, biblically speaking, is all about connecting to our future. It's a life-shaping certainty of something that hasn't happened yet, but you know will. That's the concept that you need to have in mind every time you come in Scripture to this little English word, hope, in your Bible. And that's what we cannot live without. We cannot live without hope. Hope is to the spirit what oxygen is to the body. Without it, we die. When a team loses hope, the game is over. When investors lose hope, the stock market tanks. When an army loses hope, the war is lost. When a patient loses hope, death is not too far Behind, We are unavoidably shaped by our believed-in future. Now, there's probably no better case study for how much we need hope than a guy named Viktor Frankl. Uh, some of you may be familiar with his name. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish doctor who was put into a Nazi death camp during World War II. And he survived his ordeal, and after he survived, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meeting. And it's one of those books that every person alive probably needs to read at some point in their life. If you, if you come across lists of books that are must-reads, this will always be on that list somewhere, Man's Search for Meaning. And one of the things that he noticed while he was in these camps that he later wrote about was because he was a doctor, and he never stopped being a doctor. And so one of the things he noticed was people that people were in horrific circumstances in, this, um, in these concentration camps. And some people, because of those crazy, horrific circumstances, just withered up and died. They, they, they died very quickly. They didn't last very long, just boom, and they, they were done. On the other hand, there were prisoners that didn't seem any different uh, physically speaking, and yet these people stay, stayed strong and they weathered whatever was thrown at them in the concentration camps. And, and he tried to figure out why, and one of his breakthroughs was, was this. If a prisoner lost hope in his future, he was doomed. A couple of examples of that. One of the tragedies he witnessed every almost every year was that prisoners would tend to to die just after Christmas. Every year, they would, there would be a few of them that would hope beyond all hope 
that the war would end by Christmas, that they would be free by Christmas. They, they, would, they would hear rumblings that, that maybe we're going to end the war by Christmas. They would talk about it. They would gather all of the intelligence that he needed to convince themselves that it was going to happen. The war will be over, the Christ, uh, over at Christmas. But I, I heard the Germans lost the battle at whatever place, and they're being pushed back. And by Christmas, this will all be over. But when Christmas came, and Christmas went, and they weren't free, and the war wasn't over, and nothing changed, they gave up, and they died. He said one of his friends actually had a dream that the war would end on a certain date, March 30th. And this guy was convinced that it was a revelation, uh, this dream, and that the war would indeed end on March 30th. He thought it was a sign from God. And so that's what he begins telling people. The war is going to end on March the 30th. But as the date got closer and closer, it became more and more obvious that the war was nowhere close to ending. On March 29th, the man began to run a fever. On March 30th, he lost consciousness. On March 31st, he was dead. That's not an isolated case. Uh, Frankel learned that as long as prisoners had something to live for, as long as they had something to press on for, they could endure just about anything. But once they lost their hope, they quickly died. Uh, to live without hope is to cease to live. Human beings can live for about three weeks without food, about three days without water, about three minutes with, without air, but we cannot live for three seconds without hope. You literally cannot live without hope. And it's what you believe about the future that will form and it will determine and, and it will shape how you live right now. So here's the question that we need to ask ourselves as believers today. What do we believe about the future? What do we believe about tomorrow? There are lots and lots of people in our world that do not believe in a future that is beyond this life. This life is all we get, there's nothing after it, and boom, you're done. And do you realize in this discussion about hope, how much that limits a person's ability to have hope? If a person doesn't believe that there's anything after this life, then all they have to fuel their hope today are the things that are found in this life. And guess what? Everything in this life is finite. It will all burn up sometime. And so if you don't have hope for anything after this life, then the hope that you cannot live without, right? We've already established you can't live without hope. And so you'll, you're going to grab onto something. And if you don't think that there's life after this life, then you're going to grab something from this life, in this life. And so the choices for ultimate hope are in things like your health and your family and your achievements and your fortune or your position or your status or your relationships or pleasure. And none of those things are bad things, okay? It's just that they're temporary things and they were never designed to hold hope for long. Here's what uh, Frankel writes in his book, life in a concentration camp exposes your soul's foundation. Only a few of the prisoners were able to keep their full inner liberty and inner strength. Life only has meaning in any circumstance if you have a hope that suffering, circumstances, 
and even death cannot destroy it. There was a, a Nazi prisoner who survived just like uh, Frankel, and um, he was a prisoner who did have this kind of hope while he was in the concentration camp. He lived with this kind of inexhaustible joy and hope in the camp in the worst circumstances imaginable. He would be caring and he would be compassionate to other people. He had joy every day. He loved. He gave. He worked as if breaking stones mattered, as if the menial tasks that they were given mattered. And he was once asked, how in the world can you do this? Why are you being so nice to people and so kind to people while you're in the middle of a death camp? How does that work? Why do you work like that? Why do you even try? And here's what he said. He said, I always remember my wife, who at this point was dead, by the way. And he believed that his wife was in heaven. He said, I always remember my wife, that at any time my wife might be looking down on me. That God himself might be looking down on me, and I don't want to disappoint them. That's what gave him hope. And Viktor Frankl figured out that this man wasn't just doing some psychological trick on himself. He, he realized this, that if you put your ultimate hope into anything in this life, into your job, into your money, into your family, into your health, into your status, into your suffering, uh, then your suffering and circumstances can take it away, okay? One cloudy day comes along uh, in the area, uh, the, arena, uh, the arena of that thing that you put your hope in, and all your hope disappears. It's gone. Money is gone with a crash. Uh, merriment is gone with a catastrophe. Marriage is gone with a casket. That's how it works. The only way you're going to be able to face life under any circumstance is if you find a way to put your ultimate hope into something that suffering and even death cannot take away, something eternal. The only hope that works is a hope that does not die. The only hope that works is a hope that does not die. And here's, what, here's Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, and that's the kind of hope that he's praying that we will find. He gives us what that hope is. Now, Paul writes in sentences that are way too long. Uh, uh, if you want to have real fun someday, uh, try diagramming one of his sentences. Uh, some of you don't even know what that is. Uh, that's, that's old school there. And so... Because he writes in so many prepositional phrases, we have to dig a little about the point that he's trying to make. And so if we wade through all of these phrases, then here's what we get to. He says, I'm praying that you will know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's what I'm praying. That's the premise. I want you to know the hope that you have in Jesus. And then Paul uses two lines that describe this kind of hope that he wants us to know. We find that it's a very unique hope. It's one unlike any other hope that we could pull out of this life. So your unique hope first, this first line, is in the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now let's do some word, uh, let's, let's explain a couple words so, so that it helps. Saints just means set apart ones. It doesn't mean super Christian, okay? It means all Christians. It means you and me. Every one of us who believe and who trust in Jesus are included in this word, saints. Every one of us 
get to know this hope, okay? Here's the second word, inheritance. Now, maybe, maybe that's a familiar word to you. You've heard that, right? Because how many of you want an inheritance? Oh, come on. Like, there's three of you over here. No, everybody wants an inheritance, right? Um, and hopefully, also, we want to be able to leave an inheritance to somebody else. We say something like this. Uh, my family will get my inheritance after I'm gone. And so what is an inheritance then but the sum total of what you are worth? It is all of your wealth. It is the substance of your wealth. It's all that you own and will be able to pass on to somebody else. That's what an inheritance is. And so I notice, notice then whose inheritance this is. It's not your inheritance. It's not my inheritance. What does it say? His glorious inheritance. This is God's inheritance. And so what Paul is referring to here is the substance, the sum total of God's wealth. And we need to think about it in these terms. I want you to pretend that Bill Gates is part of your family, okay? And I want you to pretend that you're at Thanksgiving dinner and um, you're drawing names for Christmas, okay? And you draw Uncle Bill's names out of the bowl. That means that you get to buy a Christmas present for Uncle Bill. What in the world do you buy Bill Gates for Christmas? Maybe a piece of farmland. I don't know. Seems like that's what he wants right now. But imagine trying to buy something for the guy who already has everything. Or let's go one step further. Imagine trying to give your Uncle Bill at Christmas time a gift that not only would be, you know, a good gift to give somebody that has everything, but a gift that would immediately become to him the most prized out of all of his possessions. What could you possibly give Bill Gates to make him go, oh my goodness, wow, this is so special that it is now worth more to me than any of my jets or my companies or my houses or my islands. Uh, this just became the most important thing that I own. What would it be? Now, can we agree with all of uh, each other that that's probably impossible to do, right? And yet, here in this line that Paul gives us, something more impossible has actually happened. What is Bill Gates' wealth in relation to God's wealth? Bill, Bill is wealthy, but God owns it all. God owns the stars and the galaxies and the planets and the mountains and the seas and even the farmland and the islands that Bill thinks he owns, right? Paul says here that there's something so valuable to God that it alone trumps everything else. It is God's inheritance. It is the sum total of his wealth. Everything else God's own, God owns is nothing in comparison. And so what is it? What, what does Paul say? God's inheritance, his inheritance is in the saints. We've already determined what the saints are. Who are the saints? We are. Every one of us. God's inheritance is us. You and me. We are the most valuable of all of God's possessions. And so here's what Paul is praying for us, that we would be swept off of our feet by our value to God. One commentator puts it this way. Paul wants you to be smitten 
by how rich God feels when he looks at you. Um, some of you uh, go, go in the Wayback Machine, and uh, you remember a guy named Stuart Smalley, and uh, he would sit in front of his mirror, and he would say, I'm good enough, and I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Right? Anybody? Now, you can sit in front of your mirror, like Stuart Smalley, and you can say, I'm good enough, and I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. You can do that for yourself. That's called self-affirmation. That might help a little bit. But what helps even more is when somebody else, not a mirror, but somebody else steps in front of you and says those same words. You know what? I've been noticing something. You're good. And you're smart. And you know what? People like you. That makes you feel good when somebody else says it, right? That has more meaning than if you just sit in front of a mirror and say it to yourself. But let's go one step further. What if you caught wind that somebody was saying those words about you to somebody else when you weren't around? Wow, that girl, you know what? She's good. And she's smart. Doggone it, people like her. And you're not anywhere close. That unobserved comment has more weight than about anything else that a person could do. And here's the punchline. None of those kinds of affirmations that feel so good and make so much difference when we hear them, none of those words about us will be even remotely like the words God says to us when we one day meet him face to face. When he sits across from us and compliments us, and in his eyes we will see the utter delight that he has about us. That's what Paul says is your future that's coming. And when you connect that future to, the, to, to today, then you get to live with greatness, then you get to live with joy, then you get to shake off the criticism that comes, then you are able to stand through the storms that come. Your unique hope in this life is that God is the wealthiest and richest when he looks at you. And that should be like you're in the middle of a battlefield, but you hear the tanks coming, you hear the horses riding in, you hear the jets streaming in. It's not reality yet. You haven't seen God face to face yet. You haven't had him take you in your arms and give you a bear hug yet, but it's coming, and that's your courage and strength for today, that future. Here's the second thing Paul says about this unique hope. Second line he uses, and this is, this is wordy, okay? And so we'll wade through it, and, and we'll make it easy. The immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and he goes on. If we had to wade, if we wade through the prepositions here, Paul just means this. You will see your unique future clearly when you look at Christ and what he has done. We now have power. You and I, because we follow Christ, we have power that is immeasurably great so that we can live this life today. Why do we have that power? Here it is. Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. There's another passage that calls Jesus the firstborn among 
from among the dead. And so what that means is that he died and he now lives again. And he's the first one to die and to live again. And next is us. We will die and also be raised from death to life. That's your future. That's the promise. Bobby Knight is uh, one who takes a different stand on things than most. Uh, Surprise. Bobby Knight, of course, is the legendary basketball coach who led the Indiana Hoosiers to three NCAA tournament finals. He did this while having one of the highest graduation rates uh, for his players in the country. Um, I personally loved after he retired and he would do basketball commentary after his coaching days because he would actually call referees out on not calling traveling. Can I get an amen? Um, But Bob Knight was also famous Uh, for throwing chairs and for chewing out officials and players and fans and anyone in the vicinity. Um, He had some very serious allegations thrown his way during his journey. Now, if you're an Indiana fan, you look at that picture and you say, well, he was just helping some poor lady across the court that needed a chair, right? But that's not what he was doing. Uh, Bob Knight wrote a book called The Power of Negative Thinking. And according to Bobby Knight, this is why I bring it up. According to Bobby Knight, hope, hope is the worst word in the English language. The worst. He says it's foolish and it's lazy to tell yourself that things are going to be all right. And that's the way we use the word hope, isn't it? Well, I hope that things will be all right. Here's what Bobby Knight says. I hate that idea of hope because things will only be all right if somebody steps up and does something. Now take Bobby Knight or leave him, but I think he's on to something. Hope does need a reason. Hope needs someone. Hope needs something. Someone to step up and to change the trajectory of things. Hope needs an agent that can get us to a better place. Without a reason, without someone doing something, hope just becomes wishful thinking. And so hope is not a what, hope is not a when, hope is a who. Hope is a who. Things don't get better just because we want them to. They get better because somebody does something. Hope is always embodied in a person. The shareholders of the company hope that the new CEO can turn the company around. Citizens of uh, uh, hope that a new leader can get their country back on track. The, the royals hope that a new manager can lift their team out of the pit. Hope is a who. Somebody has to be wise enough. Somebody needs to be strong enough. Somebody needs to be good enough to get us to a better place. And Paul's prayer is this that we would see clearly and completely that Jesus Christ is that who. He is that someone. His resurrection from the dead proves that he is stronger than any setback, he is stronger than any failure, any loss, any disappointment, or any trouble. As long as he's alive, there is hope. And guess what? He is. He is alive. He walked out of a tomb after hanging on a cross. 
Now, we have a long way to go in this journey and this discussion about hope. But that's where we start, okay? That hope is a life-shaping certainty of something that hasn't happened yet, but you know will. One day in your life, the red light in your heart is going to go out, and death is going to come, but on that same day, it will pop right back on, and we will be more alive than ever because, because we have a Savior who brought death to death by his own death. That's the hope that we have. That's the certainty. That's the future that will happen. And one day, God will open his arms to all of the saints. That's you and me, every one of us who have followed after his son. And he will name us with a smile as his sons as well. And God will say, he is rich because he has you. Paul says, cement those two things in your heart. That's your future. That's your hope. And it should make a difference how you live today. God, we thank you for the hope that Jesus gives us. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is certainty that we have a a future that is mapped out, that it is set. And our future, because we have believed in Jesus, is one where we get to be a part of your family. It's one where we get to be alive forever, even if we die. May that hope change the way we speak to people today. The places that we go today. May that hope make a difference today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'd like you to stand and we're going to respond to this great hope that we have in